Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second general session of the 2021 CCB Virtual Conference and Convention Building Our Future, Remembering Our Past. I'm Sarah Harris, uh, First Vice President. Um, I still want to change my name to Lady Who Wears Lots of Hats. And with me to welcome you back is Gabe Griffith, our President. Hi, Gabe. Hi, Sarah. Welcome, everybody. And uh, hope you enjoy what we have in store for you this afternoon. And a lot of, lot of good panels and uh, exciting times. Definitely a lot of great um, things coming up today. And we just want to remind everybody, you are on Zoom webinar. There's going to be time for Q&A along the way. And when there are, we'll ask you to raise your hand and be giving you, you know, good advice and support along the way of how to do that. But before we get started here, um, we would like to thank our gold sponsor, Cruise LLC. And uh, we have a message to play from them. Hi, I'm Kenny Montilla from Cruz, and we're proud to partner with California Council of the Blind for the 2021 virtual convention. To learn more about Cruz, visit us at www.getcruise.com or contact us directly at community at getcruise.com. We hope you have a great time at the convention. Awesome. And I really want to thank Cruz um, for their partnership with CCB. We have a lot of ideas of how we're going to collaborate in the future. And so stay tuned, everyone. And we may be calling on you for your great advice and opinions. And I know we're a couple of minutes ahead of schedule, but we have a really packed session here. So I think that's okay. And so Rachel Weisberg, are you here? I think I heard you join. Hi, yes, I am here. Awesome. So everyone, I'd like to introduce Rachel Weisberg. She's an attorney at law who specializes in um, employment rights law. And she is here. uh, She came all the way from Chicago, Illinois. Isn't that amazing? And so she's here to give us a bit of a legal update and to answer any questions you may have. So Rachel, the floor is yours. Great. Thanks, Sarah. And hi to everybody. I I wish that this was an in-person conference so that I'd be able to come to California um, instead of, you know, chatting out of my basement in Chicago. But alas, this is our life these days. Um, but I'm really, really happy to be here with all of you. Um, as Sarah mentioned, I am a lawyer. I work at Equip for Equality. Um, If you have not heard of Equip for Equality, we are the protection and advocacy agency for the state of Illinois. So we're essentially the Disability Rights California of Illinois. So most of what I do is represent people with disabilities in ADA cases. I do a lot of employment rights work um, in addition to other types of disability advocacy. Um, And in addition to my direct uh, work as a lawyer. I do a lot of talking about the ADA, writing about the ADA, training about the ADA, which is, um, I think, how I got connected with you all, which I'm really happy to to have done. Um, I'm a kind of a self-proclaimed 
ADA nerd and that I love, I just like to spend my days reading ADA updates and hearing about ADA cases. And so I try to stay as up on the ADA law as I, as I can. So that's a bit of my background. Um, Sarah mentioned my, I was asked today to speak about you know, just kind of give an ADA update about what's been happening, particularly um, for folks in the blind and low vision community um, with a, you know, a little bit of a focus on employment. Um, and so my plan is to, to start by talking about ADA and websites. You know, I'm sure this is something that's near and dear to a lot of your hearts and that you have all been part of um, bringing a lot of these cases. But there's been uh, a big case in the last month. I ADA and websites. So I wanted to spend a little time on that. Um, I'll also then talk a little bit about the ADA and employment cases, and then time permitting, just do a few other highlights of, I think, really interesting cases that have been brought um, um, by, by blind and low vision plaintiffs over the past year. And then, of course, happy to answer any questions. Um, feel free to interrupt me as I go if you have questions. Otherwise, I'm just going to kind of keep chatting. Um, so with that, why don't I start with a little discussion on the ADA and websites. And again, I'm, I, I'm sure that most of you um, know a lot of this, but just for some level setting, there's um, a little bit of background. There's, of course, many different laws that apply when we look at how the ADA applies to websites. We're looking at the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And then within the ADA itself, there's different sections, right? So there's different titles of the ADA. We've got Title I, which is all about employment. And then we've got Title II, which is state and local governments. And then Title III, which is places of public accommodation. We also have the Rehabilitation Act. And then within the Rehabilitation Act, we also have sections. We have Section 504, which applies to um, in any entity that receives federal financial assistance. And then we also have 508, right, which applies to federal agencies. Um, so in all of these laws, we've got some really broad anti-discrimination requirements that are used in a lot of ways to say, hey, websites need to be accessible. Um, and then within these different sections, there's some individual specific reasons that, that we as well need um, websites to be accessible. So most of the cases that have been brought about website accessibility have been brought under Title III of the ADA. And that, of course, is the part that applies to public accommodations or private businesses. And within the ADA, there's a requirement, um, again, sure that most folks are familiar with it, that, we, that agencies and entities need to provide auxiliary aids and services that are necessary to ensure effective communication. So we you know, colloquially call this the effective, uh, effective communication requirement. So when we look at these cases and we look at, you know, folks who are bringing cases saying, hey, this website is not accessible to me as a blind user who uses a screen reading software. This is a violation of the ADA. Most of the time, the first question before the court is, OK, well, is this website even covered by Title III of the ADA? Is this website itself a place of public accommodation or is it sufficiently tied to a place of public accommodation that it's required to be accessible? And then another thing that the court sometimes asks is, okay, let's say the website is covered by Title III. What does that mean? What does it mean to be quote unquote accessible? So you may remember that under the ADA, you know, Title III, 
in its definition of places of public accommodation, the way that the law defines place of public accommodation is by listing 12 different categories. And when you read these categories, there's no mention of websites and there's no mention of the internet. Well, is that a surprise to any of us? No, right? Because the ADA was passed in 1990, well before websites or the internet or any of that really existed as, as it does today. Um, so, you know, because of that, courts have been a little bit all over the place when trying to figure out how does the ADA apply to Title, uh, how does Title III of the ADA apply to websites? Um, I think it's really important that throughout the dis discussion to remember that Regardless of what the courts say, we also have the U.S. Department of Justice. The DOJ, of course, is the federal agency that enforces Title III of the ADA, and DOJ has consistently, over 20 years, and the first time they said this was in 1996, said, of course, Title III of the ADA applies to websites. Um, they, they made this position, again, back in 1996, 25 years ago. They've articulated it over and over again. They've entered into numerous settlement agreements, many legal briefs. They wrote a letter to Congress in 2018, emphasizing again, yes, of course, Title III of the ADA applies to websites. Um, and so it's, it's really important that we remember we have the DOJ on our side, even though we don't have specific regulations yet about what website accessibility means. Okay, so what are the current legal theories? What do the courts say about websites and the ADA? Um, well, the most common and pervasive legal theories, there's, there's essentially two. Um, well, now there's three, but there were two. So theory number one is what I would call the broadest theory. And that is that a website or a business that is housed entirely online can be a place of public accommodation, even if it has no physical structure, so long as it's providing services that otherwise fall within this definition of public accommodation. Um, this is the this is the legal theory that we get out of some some of the circuits on the East Coast, the first and second circuit and the seventh circuit, which is the circuit in Chicago, which is where I am. Um, and so that's where we have there's been cases, um, for instance, brought against Netflix. Netflix, of course, has no physical structure. Right. It's something that's housed entirely online. But based on this theory that, of course, website is providing a service, just like if we went to a movie theater, website is providing an entertainment service. And so it doesn't matter that it's housed entirely online. We want to make sure that that service is accessible. So that, I would say, is our best theory. It's our theory out again in some of the East Coast and the Midwest. We also have a theory that's called the nexus theory. Um, and this is something that, uh, again, I'm sure most of you have, have heard of because this is the applicable theory for where you all are in California. And that's this theory that a website can be a place of public accommodation um, and can be covered by Title III of the ADA so long as there's some nexus or there's some connection between the website and a physical place of public accommodation. You know, this is a kind of a common example would be, let's say you have a website that has like um, a, a location finder. And so, you know, we would go on the website to find where this physical store is. Well, that's a nexus between this website and a physical place of public accommodation. So that would be enough to make the, the website have to be accessible. And that's the theory that we have in the Ninth Circuit and a couple of the circuits as well. And that was the theory that we thought was the case in the Eleventh Circuit, which is for uh, covers Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. Um, and 
Folks may remember that in 2017, there was a lawsuit filed um, on behalf of Juan Carlos Gill, who is an individual who's blind and used screen reading software, and he filed a lawsuit against the Winn-Dixie grocery store. Now, when he filed this lawsuit saying, hey, Winn-Dixie, your grocery store website is not accessible, guess what Winn-Dixie said? They didn't challenge that. They didn't say, no, you're wrong. It, it is accessible. They admitted, you're right. It's, our website is not accessible. But... It doesn't matter because our website is not covered by Title III of the ADA. Well, this case went to, a, it actually went to, went to um, a judge. This was the first case in the entire country that was a, a website accessibility case that was decided by a judge. And the judge found for Mr. Gill and said, when Dixie's website violated Title III of the ADA. Um, and they said, you know, we don't have to decide if the website itself is a place of public accommodation because there's enough connection. You know, we, they kind of use this nexus theory. There's enough connection between the website and the physical grocery store that we're going to have a Title III obligation. Um, some of the things that the court pointed out to for this nexus, um, Winn-Dixie had an online pharmacy management where someone could call or could go on the website, place an online pharmacy order, and then pick it up in the store. The same thing, someone could go on the website, download coupons digitally, and then use those coupons in the physical store. So as I see it, there's a connection, right? There's a nexus between what you can do online and what you can do in the physical store. And so the judge, after finding, yes, you're subject to Title III of the ADA, the judge entered what's called an injunction where he ordered compliance with certain requirements. And this is what I think a lot of folks, you know, a lot of us in the disability community were really excited because it was the first time that a judge had ordered specific compliance with a standard. So not just saying we have to be accessible, but helping us understand what that means. And so this judge had said, we need, um, or that Winn-Dixie needs to comply with WCAG 2.0 level AA. And then also put in things that we all like to see in settlement agreements, things like having website audits every couple of months, having web training, having compliance for third-party vendors, um, and so, you know, again, it was a, a huge, a huge win um, in, our, in our community. But what happened after that is something that happens frequently in these types of cases is that Winn-Dixie decided to appeal and, and Winn-Dixie appealed to the 11th Circuit. And this had happened back in 2018. Now, I can tell you, usually appeals take some time, right? But this one took a lot of time. So we have been waiting since this case was argued in October, 2018, we have been waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, we got a decision from the 11th circuit. Um, this decision came out just a couple of weeks ago on April 7th. Um, and I gotta tell you, it's not a decision that I think any of us were hoping for. Um, what happened in this decision is that when the 11th circuit concluded that the Winn-Dixie website was not itself a place of public accommodation. And the reason the 11th Circuit said this is that they said a public accommodation is limited to an actual physical place. OK, so not a great finding. Um, and then this was, the, I think, a huge surprise to everyone. The 11th Circuit said, you know what? And we don't like this nexus theory. Again, this nexus theory is, is something that we've used across the country to make sure we have accessible websites. We thought that was the what the 11th Circuit had thought as well, but they said, we don't like this, the nexus theory, we, we expressly reject it. 
But that wasn't that wasn't the end. The 11th Circuit then said, you know, it is still possible, even though the website itself isn't a public accommodation, even though we don't like this nexus theory, it is still possible for Winn-Dixie to still violate Title III of the ADA by having an inaccessible website. But what the 11th Circuit did is it kind of started this whole new theory. And what they said is that a website has to be a, quote, intangible barrier to accessing a physical brick and mortar store. And so what the court looked at was whether Winn-Dixie's inaccessible website was an intangible barrier, whether that totally prevented Mr. Gill from accessing the, the, the physical store. Um, and Mr. Gill, as I mentioned, had really pointed to two things he wanted to do on the website. One was fill his, fill his prescriptions, and two was to use these digital coupons. And the court said, you know, Mr. Gill isn't able to go on the website, but he can still go into the store, and he can still place his order for his prescription, and he can still get it. Yeah, the court also said, well, sure, Mr. Gill can't go on his web, can't go on the website and download these coupons, but he can still, you know, use the paper coupons and use those in a store. And so based on that, the court said there was no intangible barrier. Okay, so that's basically what the decision is. So I want to pause for a moment. And I guess I'll, I'll start with what I think we're all thinking is that, you know, why this, why, in my opinion, and I, you know, this case is, is wrongly decided and why it has a negative impact. And, you know, I think CCB has done a lot of really great work pushing the case law forward about the importance of being able to do things privately and independently. Um, you know, a lot of those cases, a lot of those core concepts came from the voting cases, but they've been applied in other cases as well. And this case just shows that the court did not understand or did not value the importance of independence and privacy. And there was a really strong dissenting opinion and the dissenting opinion brought this out and said, sure, Mr. Gill is able to go into a store and announce his prescription, but he, he doesn't know, you know, necessarily who's around him, who can hear him. He's broadcasting his private medical information, whereas anyone who's cited who can use a website can do that privately and independently. The same thing with the coupons. You know, Mr. Gill had to rely on other people to, to cut these paper coupons for him and identify what they were because he didn't have access to them in a digital way. So I think from that purpose, even if we're looking at this intangible barrier perspective, it's an unfortunate decision and it's wrongly decided. That being said, um, there's a lot of buzz about how important this case is. And it certainly is an important case. It's certainly something that we need to try to circumvent in other circuits. Um, but my hope, 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 is that it's going to have a limited impact. Um, and here's why. One reason is that the 11th Circuit, of course, creates precedent or required law that other courts need to follow only in three states. So only in Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. And so the decision itself isn't going to have an impact for anyone in any other state. Um, the other thing is, even for businesses that are operating in those, th those three states, right, Alabama, Florida, and Georgia, you know, we live in a very digital world. There's very few businesses that are going to have a website that operates in Alabama that don't also have a website that operates in a different jurisdiction or a different state. And so if there's an inaccessible website, you know, a plaintiff can decide, well, I'm not going to file a lawsuit in the 11th Circuit. I'll file a lawsuit somewhere else and most likely get a much better decision. And so I actually think a lot of businesses are being counseled not to over rely on this decision because of that sort of national scope. 
And then finally, the court throughout this decision really tried to minimize what Winn-Dixie's website did. Um, Winn-Dixie's website at the time didn't sell any goods, and the court just kept saying it has limited use, it has limited functionality. Um, And so my, my... My guess is that if there was another website that had a more robust functionality, maybe a website that sold goods directly, that the court would even find that to be an intangible barrier. Um, So my my hope is that even though I think it's a very, very frustrating and disappointing case that will have some sort of limited um, impact. A lot of people have been interested about what's going to happen next. So I wanted to, I, I definitely can't look in a crystal ball and tell you what's definitely going to happen, but I can tell you what might happen. Um, the first thing is that the plaintiff, uh, Mr. Gill, filed what's called a petition for rehearing on bonk. So usually when you go to an appellate court, um, you argue your case before a panel of three judges. But if you think that that panel of three judges got it wrong, you can ask the entire panel, the entire court, which is, I think there's like 15 or so judges, to rehear and redecide the case. Um, now, petitions for rehearing on bonk aren't things that have to be granted. The court has, you know, can kind of decide whether or not it wants to grant that. Um, but I think there's some reasons here that it might happen. One is there was, like I said, a a dissenting judge that had a very strong dissent about how she felt this was a very, very bad decision. One is there's an argument that this case goes against prior 11th Circuit and other courts, and so causing some sort of friction within the circuit. Um, And it's, you know, it's obviously a very, very important legal issue. And so we um, are still waiting to hear what's going to happen. But I guess I wouldn't be totally surprised if the if the court decide to rehear the case on bank. Um, The other thing that could happen if the Seventh Circuit denies the petition is that uh, Mr. Gill can also decide to file what's called a writ of certiorari in the U.S. Supreme Court, asking the U.S. Supreme Court to hear his case. Um, That, too, of course, is discretionary. I think, you know, those of us who aren't in the Eleventh Circuit are probably a bit fearful of that happening and the potential for what might happen at the Supreme Court, but that's certainly, you know, a possibility. And so, you know, I just, it's something that I think our community's got to watch and, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens with that case, but a really important one that I wanted to make sure folks understood. Okay. I'm going to switch gears a bit. I'm going to stay on the topic of website and digital accessibility, but I'm going to switch gears a bit to employment. So remember we talked about public accommodations and what it means to be, have effective communication. Um, Well, when when we talk about employees and applicants who, um, who have digital accessibility on their mind, None of that really matters. So the reason why is that we're still talking about the ADA, but we're talking about a totally different section of the ADA. We're talking about Title I. And Title I, of course, prohibits employers from discriminating against qualified individuals with disabilities. um, And it requires employers to provide reasonable accommodations. And so most frequently when we look at blind applicants or blind employees who um, are requesting digital accessibilities as part of the application or as part of their job, the way that courts, and I think the law typically analyzes it is not as whether it's something that needs to be provided based on this effective communication principle, but whether or not it could be a reasonable accommodation under the ADA. Um, I'll say that personally, this is an area where I think we all need 
we could all do a lot more work. There's very few cases about digital accessibility in, in the workplace, especially compared to the cases out there about Title III of the ADA. Um, there are two cases that settled in the past year that I thought I would, I would mention. I think they're both pretty interesting. One is a case called Murad versus Amazon. It was a case brought out of Michigan. And there we have an individual who had tried to apply for a virtual customer service position. I mean, hey, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, when a lot of us are working from home, having a virtual community service position seems like a pretty good fit for a lot of us, right? Um, but I'm sure this is not a story that is, you know, foreign to anyone. Um, the technology that this plaintiff needed to do the job was inaccessible with her voiceover. Um, and so because of that, that, she wasn't able to do the job. And Amazon ultimately said she wouldn't be able to be hired for this job. Um, there was a settlement in this case. Um, Amazon agreed to implement an accessible technology system that will allow, uh, you know, blind folks to work from home as Amazon customer service representatives, and then offered this particular individual also the opportunity for to obtain a job um, if she, you know, applied for the job again. So, you know, I think, I, I don't know, it would be interesting to see what happens with Amazon. If anyone has particular experiences or knowledge, I'd be interesting to hear. But I was excited to see this case because, again, I think it's an issue that we're seeing over and over again. And there aren't a huge amount of uh, court cases to help us, um, to help point to, to show employers that they got to they gotta comply with the law here. Um, another settlement I wanted to mention, and this might be one that folks might be aware of because it's a bit older, it's from... Um, February of 2019, and this is the case Bartleson versus Miami-Dade County School Board. Um, and this case was brought by a blind counselor and clinician who had worked for a school system for 27 years um, and brought a lawsuit under Title I of the ADA saying, hey, you know, this whole, the school system's websites and forms and app software, you know, all of it's inaccessible. And, you know, I can't do my job because I need to rely on help from a sighted coworker. And because of that, I have limited promotional opportunities. And so this case also resulted in a consent decree, which is um, a type of settlement that's approved by the court. And there the school system agreed to make its websites and forms and software accessible and also gave the plaintiff um, some money and, and, and monetary damages. One of the things I really like about that case is it shows that, you know, sometimes when you have a, a place like a, a school or a college or a hospital, when you have a, when you have, um, you have an employee who has accessibility um, needs, it's likely that there's gonna be students or customers or clients or patrons who are gonna have the same, you know, same needs as well. And so I like being able to kind of handle an employment case that also has a kind of a Title II or Title III angle. Um, and I can just tell you personally, we've been getting a ton of these types of cases. Um, we're handling some, but they're all and, and they're all pending. So I have to be kind of general. But you know, the kind of the fact pattern that we're seeing over and over again is really similar to that Amazon fact pattern, where we have a lot of clients applying for jobs, certainly qualified for the job, um, but then they find out that the hardware or software isn't accessible, and you know, the employer is not willing to work with them. So. Um, again, definitely an area where we, we, I think we all as a community need to, need to do a lot of work. Um, just one thing that I think is 
a little tricky in the Title I world is that typically the way it works is that employees have to be the ones that request a reasonable accommodation. Um, and so I think there's an argument that employers could make that they don't need to proactively have accessible equipment or hardware or whatever. Um, and I, I think that's that's wrong. And I think that's something that we need to find a legal theory to challenge. But I think that is going to be what a lot of employers say in response to some of these cases. Um, and I'm happy to chat more about employment specific questions um, during our time together. Um, I'm going to just mention, let's see, I think I have about 15, 20 minutes. I'm going to mention just maybe two or three other interesting um, cases that have come out in the past year or so, and then um, I would love to, to chat and hear what's on your mind. So another really important, uh, I, it's not even a court case, but it's a, a decision for us all to know about is a, a case called uh, Irving versus Uber. And this was a case that was brought to an arbitration, which is kind of like a private court. And it was on behalf of somebody who um, was blind and had a guide dog. And on 14 different occasions, had been failed to be picked up by an Uber driver um, or had been picked up by the Uber driver, but had been harassed based on her disability and by her use of the, of the guide dog. So she brought um, a case that ended up in arbitration and brought it under both the ADA and uh, all of your California state law, which is great because it provides for some monetary relief. Um, and Uber had defended itself arguing that they're not liable because their drivers are independent contractors over whom they have very little control. Um, well, the arbitrator did not agree with that and said, no, Uber is really the one who failed to modify its policies to prevent discrimination and had also failed to properly train its drivers. Um, so folks may remember there was also this nationwide settlement against or with Uber about the same issue. And so Uber also argued there's no relief for this individual because of this nationwide settlement. And the arbiter also disagreed with that and said, well, we can still give monetary damages. We can give monetary relief for this individual and awarded you know, a pretty substantial amount, $324,000 in damages under the state law, um, and then $800,000 in attorney's fees. So an over, you know, $1.1 million decision against Uber. So really, really, really big news. Um, the other thing I just wanted to, of course, remind everyone that we've seen over and over again over the past year is this kind of huge proliferation of accessible vote by mail cases. Um, and I, I know y'all were part of a settlement agreement against San Mateo County about this exact issue in 2018. So I think you are ahead of your time. And in the past year, there's been just so many more of these types of cases. I mean, I, I would do a disservice to even try to reference all of them, but there's been ones in Pennsylvania and Virginia and New York and New Hampshire. And, you know, a lot of these have been voluntary settlements. A lot of them have been TROs or preliminary injunctions, um, but it's been a really, you know, when we think of what's the so we got to think of the silver lining sometimes of this past year, and I think just the great movement for accessible vote by mail is probably one of them in my book. Um, and then I also wanted to mention um, that there's been some action in the world of accessible pedestrian signals. 
Um, of course, the American Council of the Blind um, sued the city of New York. And in 2020, last year in October, um, the court had found for the for the plaintiff. So what happened in this case was that there was a class a class that was of blind and low vision New York City pedestrians, and they had sued the city for failing to provide non-visual crossing information at most intersections. Um, and so oftentimes, um, we we don't we don't always win these cases on the papers or on what's called a motion for summary judgment where we ask the court to say even before we go to a trial we we think we win because there's no possible way you could find for the other side and that's that's what um ACB did here and did it successfully and the court said yeah we're going to grant you summary judgment because there was a near total absence of accessible pedestrian signals and that denies blind and low vision pedestrians meaningful access to intersections. Um, and so what's happening in that case now is that the parties are essentially submitting remedial plans to the judge and that's what's currently, currently happening. Uh, but New York City is not the only place that is working on accessible pedestrian signals. There is a case also in my hometown of Chicago that the ACB of Metro Chicago filed with some individual folks. And they also sued the city of Chicago for failing to install accessible pedestrian signals. Um, and the big news in that case is that just, I think it was last week, last week or the week before, um, the U.S. Department of Justice filed what's called a motion or petition to intervene, to become intervening plaintiffs. And the idea is that DOJ wants to also help move that case forward. They also want to be a plaintiff in that case. And that petition was granted. So I think that's going to, you know, kind of bring a lot more, um, I, I think it's going to bring that case a little bit more national attention. And, um, it, you know, it always helps when we have the power of DOJ next to us advocating. So, um those are the cases that I thought were the most important to point out. And I see that there's a couple of hands. Um, so let's hear what your questions are and what your thoughts are. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Margie. I want to ask you um, if you guys are doing anything about the federal government. And if not, why? Um, they are in so many 508 violations. Yep. They have caused quite a number of people to become unemployed who are blind. And yep. um, if you file a 508 complaint, you get pushed over to 504, you get pushed over to EEO, you get pushed back and forth. Nobody knows how to handle such a case. So, yeah, you know, I, it's, it's such a good question and it's such a good point. Um, so I, I do actually, I, I'm representing right now um, the NFB and an individual person in a claim against OPM and Blue Cross Blue Shield about the accessibility of OPM's health care programs for federal employees. Um, I can't say much more than that because it's a pending case, but that is what one thing that we are doing. Um, and I, I totally agree with you about, I mean, what one thing that's been helpful in our case and is that we didn't at least our argument is that we, because our, our particular client is a retired employee, we argued that the requirement of going, you know, the exhausting your administrative remedies or whatever under 508 wasn't something we had to do. Um, but I, I think there's just such a, 
a lack of law about some of those things that, you know, it's definitely an area where much more should be done. Um, I absolutely agree. Um, I just want to say, sorry, connect with you. Um, I I deal with OPM as well. Oh, okay. Definitely. Um, You know, we just as a caveat, you know, we are limited to representing people in Illinois, but we, I would love to talk and hear about your experiences and either, you know, we could team up with people in Illinois or connect with the California PNA or figure out something else, but definitely, definitely reach out. Um, there have been a couple cases or settlements, I guess, against the federal government. There was one against social security administration to improve its visitor intake processing kiosks. And then there was one against the IRS, both from last year. So one from March and one from July of 2020. Um, so I think some work is being done, but you're, you're absolutely right. We've got 508. It's substantively a strong law and the federal government should be the leader on these things. And so we need to hold them to account. Sheila? Um, I, my question is, what are we going to do about bad actors? I mean, Kaiser has had settlements against it. And in my opinion, I'm not seeing much change. Mm-hmm. Their website is only quasi-accessible. Their apps are quasi-accessible. Um, and other entities that have to do with health, such as all these COVAX sign-up sites in different counties that were horribly inaccessible. Um, I guess the thing that bothers me is, you know, the 508's been around since 1996, and a lot of these things have come along since then. Why isn't it being followed? So my question to you, that wasn't actually the question. It was more (laughs) But the question to you is more, if you could send, if, if you had to teach a recalcitrant-sided person about the web, where would you send them? Where would you tell them, you cannot talk to me again until you've actually read through this website? What would it be? Yeah, well... I know, I know that um, Lainey Feingold has been a good friend to, to ACV um, and, and I assume CCV over the years. I love her site. Um, I, think it's, I think it explains things in an understandable way. I think she has a lot of practical resources, including consultants that people can talk to. Um, I mean, I, 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 I hate to say it because I think... The problem, you know, one of the problems with the ADA is that it requires us to sue, right? To there's no one going around affirmatively checking things and giving people passes, and so it's a frustrating law to enforce because you know you're you're right. We have to find a we have to find a case. We have to sue. We get a settlement. People violate the settlement. We have to go in and file things for breach of settlement. I mean, it's one of these processes that ends. It takes a quite a long time. Um, and I mean, as a lawyer, sometimes I think the better way is n- not the lit- litigation way because it takes forever. And it's more of, you know, getting people to understand why this is so important. Um, I think a lot of that is getting people into these companies and businesses that have the power to make change who understand this stuff. I mean, it's it's great when companies, you know, are understanding the importance of, you know, our community and making sure that we have access to things. Um, 
I don't know. That's not a great answer. Um, but I, 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 I guess I'm, I'm, I hear you on the frustration part because I, I think it's, it's a, it is definitely a problem, but I, I do like Blaney's website. Um, especially I, I'm a huge fan of like when, when I'm trying to resolve a case, looking at other good solutions. And one thing, one way I do that is by looking at settlements that other organizations have entered into, um, and Laney has a lot of good samples out there that, you know, businesses could look at to see, okay, how do I do this? It's more than just saying, I'm going to make my website, you know, WCAG 2.1 compliant. It has things like, let's have user testing. Let's have manual and, you know, and automatic testing. Let's have a policy. Let's do audits. You know, let's have a training program. But like all the things that we really need to put into place to make sure that this stuff sticks. Okay, Jeff. Thank you, Rachel, for being here. Uh, great presentation. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I think many people in this audience know, even during the Obama administration, where we had such high hopes, you know, DOJ refused to do anything about, you know, adopting regulations. And of course, there was not even a uh, uh, any chance at all of, in, of that happening during the Trump administration. So, um, and I, and I also know there are those out there who are trying to push for legislative, you know, for, for a, a federal enactment that would solve the problem. Although I suspect we won't get that done in today's Congress, but do you think that, um, There'll be increased pressure and, and the, any possibility of the Biden administration finally um, getting their act together in terms of website accessibility regulations. So maybe I'm just an optimist, but I, I, I do. Um, and I'm really hopeful that it will happen. And, you know, maybe a decision like Winn-Dixie is going to help push the administration to see, you know, like, let's enough of this nonsense. We've been arguing about this and coming up with ridiculous legal theories for 20 years. This shouldn't be rocket science, right? This shouldn't be such a controversial thing. Like the ADA is supposed to make sure that we have equality and we have equal opportunity and access. And how can we have that if the internet's not covered by the ADA? I mean, the internet is the internet, you know, so I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, again, I'm not part of the administration. I, I can't say for sure, but I, I am optimistic and I am hopeful. And I, I think, I think we've got, I think we've got a good chance. I think there's some good people in the administration too, that, that get these issues. What do you think? I'm hopeful, but not, I'm cynical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, key. And I, oh, I think fine. most folks know this, but you know, the, the regulation process went on for years. You know, there was an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, the first step that was announced like in 2010. And then that was on hold until 2017 when the regulations were withdrawn from the Trump administration. So it was seven years of sitting there. So I don't blame you for your skepticism at that point. Okay, your next question is from Keith. Hi, Rachel. This is uh, Keith Kobala. This is, this is a very good presentation so far. Hi, Keith. Great. Uh, I am actually studying to become an ADA coordinator. Oh, it's a hard job. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, yeah, it's hard. It's challenging, but, it's, but it looks like it's good based on everything I've heard so far. Yeah. A, there are a lot of issues that we need to work on as far as 504, 508, 
and I'm learning a lot now. I'm learning more now based on what I heard about about the uh, public accommodation thing about websites. So I'll be I'll be happy to network with anybody with you or anybody this weekend about about on what else we can. I can yeah. Uh, I can I'll be happy to network network and get more information. Well, yeah, it's, it's great to meet you. So um, if anyone wants to follow up with me, um, my email is Rachel W. It's R-A-C-H-E-L-W at equipforequality.org. Um, and definitely shoot me an email. There's, you know, my, my, uh, I, I do trainings regularly for this group of ADA coordinators. And I got to say, I mean, ADA coordinators have, have a hard job and it is such an important job and it's a job that can really make such significant changes for how organizations handle ADA issues. So more of us in the disability community that can be trained and learn how to do that job. You know, I, I just think it, that's, that's one way we can really effectuate um, some meaningful change. So props to you for, for doing that. And um, to the extent you're not already linked up with your regional ADA center, um, they have some great programs and trainings for ADA coordinators too. So definitely something to check out. So your email again is Rachel. It's yeah, it's Rachel W at equip for equality. So E Q U I P and then for equality. Six, eight, eight, last three. You may unmute. Hi, my name is Bernice, and I'm one of the seven plaintiffs that filed against the Social Security Administration in 2009 uh, for a couple of issues. Uh-huh. Uh, and and not, they're not following the the rules that were were passed. And I I wish that we could do something to to deal with that. And secondly, as a retired federal employee, uh, the, uh, they refused to give me any, uh, information about, uh, uh, services, uh, medical services, uh, you know, what the, from the different companies in accessible format because I'm not employed. They can only give it to employed federal employees. What? Are you part of their health system? Yes, I, I when I I when I was uh, working for Social Security, I was I switched when I moved to Washington D.C. to uh, the GIHA plan. They had seven uh-huh. national plans, and I have kept that ever since. I still have it. Huh. Yeah, shoot me shoot me an email. I'll keep you posted on our case too, because it okay. would probably apply to you. Okay. Okay. Eight four four. Last three, you may unmute. And this will be last question. Rachel, I, I want to thank you very much for an extremely clear presentation. Uh, I'm wondering about something which was actually sort of indirectly suggested by the previous question. What is the durability of our settlement agreements? I'm particularly worried that in the public sector, they're expiring, and for various reasons, they're not retaining the momentum or the follow-up that would be necessary in some cases. So, so much of our advances have been based upon the wonderful work bringing about these settlement agreements. What can we do to preserve them? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of settlement agreements have an expiration date. And when that, so if there's a violation during the settlement agreement, you can always file a lawsuit for breach of the settlement agreement. If the settlement agreement is called a consent decree, that's when the court has essentially blessed the agreement. You can go actually back into the original court and say, hey, you know, 
things aren't working um, and try to get relief that way. Um, if the settlement agreement is, has expired, then unfortunately, in a lot of cases, the only thing you can do is file it, you know, file a new case or do some new advocacy. But I think in that case, especially, you know, for folks who have remedies under state law to get some money, I mean, you're showing some real bad faith. Like if they knew and an entity knew that they had to do something and they had an agreement to do it and then, you know, years later, they're still not doing it. I mean, it's hard under, you know, it, it, it's hard to show it's hard to get money under certain parts of the ADA, but um, I, I think there's a, a good factor there and a good argument that, you know, it just, it really shows how, um, I don't know about intentional or it, it shows like some real bad acting on behalf of the covered entity. But it also, you know, it also shows the limits of what the law can do. I mean, I think as a lawyer, there's a lot we can do and we've got a lot of tools in our toolbox, but there's limitations of what the law does too. And I think what you've pointed out is, you know, one example of a limitation. All right. Okay. Oh, oh we're, we're, that was actually the last one. We oh, okay. 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 If anyone else has a burning question that I didn't get to, um, you can feel free to send me an email or give me a call. I'd be happy to talk. Awesome. And thank you so much, Rachel. We really appreciate such a timely presentation. And, and thank you to Jeff Tom for connecting um, Rachel with us. It's really appreciated. And you have a happy Friday. Feel free to stick around and, and listen in if you'd like. Okay. I, I actually need to run and pick up my kids from school. It's four o'clock here. So oh, um, I'm going to go do yeah. that. But it was such a pleasure talking with everyone and um, have a wonderful weekend and a great convention. Oh, thank you so much, Rachel. All right. Everybody give a virtual round of applause to Rachel. All right. So next up, we have a great uh, panel presentation that's going to be given by our newest affiliate, Inclusive Diversity of California. And um, their presentation is called Untapped Assets, Racial and, Racial and Ethnic Diversity in CCB. And I want to introduce Pam Metz their vice president to introduce the panel and make sure that everybody's here. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Pamela Metz, and I am the vice president of IDC, Inclusive Diversity of California, and we are here to introduce ourselves to CCB. Um, I am also, in, I have been a member of CCB for almost eight almost 19 years, 18 and a half years now, and I have served on the Multicultural Affairs Committee with ACB for over 14 years. Our goal here is to involve the community to make IDC more inclusive and to make our community to make our community stronger. Everyone has life experiences and can bring them to IDC. So we will welcome all new members to IDC. Um, I the, one of my goal reasons for being involved with IDC and wanting to start IDC is because I am a black woman of African descent and have a grown son and three grandsons and a granddaughter. We must not forget her. Um, so I'm very, um, and I want to make sure in, in my own mind, California is a very diverse state. We are um, with a very large population culturally and racially to make sure blind and visually impaired adults are represented in, in CCB. So I'd like to introduce our first speaker, 
Her name is Jessica Marquez, and she is the secretary of IDC. So, Jessica, take it away. Of course. Thank you, Pam. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for being here today. Uh, my name is Jessica Marquez, and like Pam said, I am the secretary, and then I'm also an adjunct professor at three colleges, Coastline, Golden West, and also LBCC. I'm also involved in student equity committees in the educational level. And today I'm here to talk to you about the importance of statistics and numbers because that really shapes us and it really demonstrates how our actual communities are moving from one spectrum to the other and how demographics change over time. Now, Pam did mention how California is very diverse. So currently in the U.S., according to the U.S. Census, if we look at the world clock right now, we are at 330 million individuals in the U.S. In California, we have 39 million humans here. And that means that one in eight U.S. (laughs) residents live in California. Our actual California population is very diverse as well. Approximately 39% are Latinx, 36% are white, 15% are Asian or Pacific Islander, 6% are African American, fewer than 1% are either Native American or Alaska Natives, and about 3% in the American community, uh, community survey from 2019 said that they are 3% multiracial or other. Another factor about California's diversity is we have approximately 10 million Californians that are immigrants, according to the 2019 estimates. Uh, So this really shapes how Californians definitely have one of the biggest populations when it comes to foreign born and also looking at the diversity of California as well. Another thing that I do want to share is coming from the California Department of Finance estimates and projections. What happens is over time, our actual diversity in California has actually changed. So on the screen right now, I actually have a graphic that really shows from 1970 to 2019, how things have changed over time, according to the population. Remember how I mentioned those Statistics beforehand, 39% Latinx, um, 36% white. Back in the day, uh, white Americans were about 76% in the 1970s, and now it has lowered, whereas other demographics have changed over time. And the reason why I mentioned this is because this is the diversification of California when we can clearly see them in statistics and demographics and when we sign that U.S. Census information. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. I'd like to introduce our next speaker. That would be Susan Kitasawa. She is a member of the San Francisco chapter, and she's one one of the ladies who helped form IDC. Take it away, Susan. Thank you very much. Um, I am Susan Kitazawa. Um, I'm here in San Francisco. Um, came out here after I finished growing up. Um, And I was born and raised as an American. My family came here more than 100 years ago from Japan. Um, And I live with progressive vision loss. I now have about 85% of my visual field gone. So I've been involved with CCB 
pretty marginally for probably about 10 years. I'm a retired RN and um, I am 74 years old. Today is my birthday. Um, so I was assigned the, uh, the part of talking about the needs of people of color within CCB. And as I began to think about this, I thought the needs of we people of color is pretty much the same thing as as the needs of we people who are blind. And um, first thing we need is we need to be seen and to be able to see ourselves as valid whole human beings, um, not as flawed or somehow less than what the norm is, um, and certainly not to be pitied or um, <clears throat> fussed over as if we can't really do things. Um, we need to be able to have rich and meaningful roles in life. And by rich, I mean in the fullest sense of that word, to really be able to use all our skills and our abilities and our talents um, to contribute to the community, although rich in terms of money would also be very nice. Um, and we need room to, to really be who we are within the world and within the organization. And I'm speaking both about blind people and people of color. Um, we also need to be heard and to be heard respectfully. And even if our experiences as people of color or as blind people are different from the mainstream experience or what has been the mainstream experience, we need to be able to speak our own truths and to be listened to, even if sometimes this makes other people uncomfortable because they're not used to being around us. Um, we also need as people in the blind community know, not to be told to go slower, to wait, that having a full role is not really quite happening for us yet, that no, 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 we, we need this now. Um, we needed this long time ago, but we certainly need it now and going forward. Um, another thing that we need is... For all of us, and I mean all of us, to set aside our biases, both unconscious and conscious. And if you happen to think that you don't have any bias about people with disabilities or you don't have any biases about people of color or about any other group of people, um, think again, because bias is just part of human life. We all have biases and we need to be aware of the biases we have and we need to work on them when they're getting in our way or getting in other people's way. There is an absolutely wonderful book that Jessica Marquez um, recommended, and I read it, and it's um, available through BARD. It's called Blind Spot. The subtitle is The Hidden Biases of Good People. Um, and even though we're good people, we have biases. The DB number is 80639. And I think that's also in the, the posted thing, if you're able to see that. CCB and ACB as organizations need to embrace 
all blind people, not just some blind people. There was recently um, one of the magazines coming out of ACB giving statistics about the leadership of ACB, um, both in terms of gender and in terms of ethnicity. And it was it was kind of stunningly obvious that this is something that we all need to work on. And I want to wrap up just by saying the title of our, our new affiliate is Inclusive Diversity of California. Diversity is already a reality. Um, when you heard the statistics given at the beginning, um, I believe European American people are about a little bit more than a third of the people in California now, and then the other two thirds are a whole mix of us. So diversity is already here. That's, that's not up for debate. Um, inclusivity is a choice and something we can decide whether we're going to be part of or not. And I just want to finish up by saying that inclusivity would be a very, very wise choice for CCB um, going forward, because including us all will make the organization stronger um, and healthier. Thank you very much. Thank you, Susan. I'd like to introduce Stephanie Watts. She is a member of the ACB Capital Chapter, and she's also helped form this organization, and she or this affiliate, and she also is serves on the Governmental Affairs Committee. Take it away, Stephanie. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you, Pam, and thank you, uh, Jessica and Susan, for starting us off. <clears throat> As Pam said, I am a member of the ACB Capital Chapter here in Sacramento, California. And by way of brief background, uh, I was employed with the state of California for 28 years. I retired about six years ago. And during that time, I've done a few different things, but the past year or so I've spent very much immersed in uh, ACB Capital Chapter activities and governmental affairs activities, uh, legislative seminar, um, and related activities, again, um, to, to just serve and be of um, good use to the organization. And so I'm thankful to have an opportunity to speak to you all today about strengths as you look at um, possibly becoming uh, members of Inclusive, Inclusive Diversity of California, our affiliate. Um, want to talk about it and um, for the benefit of those who may not be able to see the PowerPoint, um, I've been uh, fortunate to be given four slides and I'm using the acronym RIDE, R-I-D-E, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, I want to tell you just one of the, uh, actually the first sentence of our mission statement to give you a framework to consider your strengths and whether you believe you'll be a good fit for IDC. So the first sentence begins, the mission of Inclusive Diversity of California, IDC, is to promote and sustain an inclusive environment that truly values and embraces the diverse ethnic and cultural experiences and perspectives of the members of the California Council of the Blind. So again, that's the first sentence of our mission statement. So think about that as we consider whether you think you'll be a good fit. So 
again, going back to that acronym RIDE, the first letter is resilient. So if you're not sure if you're going to be a good fit here and if you want to be involved, think about this. So resilient. Do you tend to recover from or adjust easily to misfortune or change? And you might say, well, yeah, sure, maybe, I don't know, depending on. Um, but by and large, if you are that person, you adjust, you, you might get a little upset or you might feel very impassioned about your issue and um, not feel good when you maybe lose the debate over the issue. But if you can make that adjustment, then we would consider you resilient and we need that. And so let's look at the second letter, the I, innovative. So again, this is the acronym RIDE and innovative is that second letter. So in terms of that, um, if you feel like you're a person who enjoys coming up with new ways to complete a task, I would think you would be innovative. Now, others might look up the official dictionary definition and say, well, there's a lot more to being innovative than that. Um, but uh, if you just take it at a basic level, because everything doesn't have to be at the high 30,000 foot level. I mean, just basic things like coming up with a new way to uh, solve a problem, either in your family or in your friend's group or uh, wherever you, you um, network. Um, so we consider you innovative. The third letter is disciplined. And for this one, my question to you is, do you, let me read it again here. Do you maintain your cool in the face of chaos? Do you maintain your cool in the face of chaos? Well, I, I can honestly say I don't always do that, but I'd like to think I do. And if you think you do, then yeah, you're disciplined. It's very easy to lose focus, get off track, um, when you're trying to um, manage things. But um, by and large, if you maintain your cool, discipline is what we think you are and you are welcome. And finally, to wrap it up, energetic. And you can determine what energetic means to you, but I'm just gonna ask you real quick, are you a person that inspires and motivates those around you? And if you want to say yes to that, you are energetic. And so my... Um, conclusion here is if you answer yes to even one of these questions, we encourage you to come ride with IDC where your time and your talent will be put to good use. And I want to just leave you with this. Remember that there is strength when we ride together. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you, Stephanie. That was great. I'd like to introduce uh, Regina Brink. She is president of the IDC, of IDC, and she is also president of the Capital Chapter ACB Capital Chapter, and she is also serves on the Governmental Affairs Committee. Take it away, Regina. Thank you, Pam. And I just want to thank everyone for being here to listen to this presentation. Uh, by way of background, I do have two BA degrees, one in sociology and one in ethnic studies. And I went on to use those degrees to work first with Head Start and then with the Women, Infant, Child program. 
as a counselor working mainly with low-income and sighted populations. After that, I went on through many ups and downs to get a job working as the program coordinator, coordinating volunteers, but I was paid (laughs) for the Society for the Blind here in Sacramento. I retired, and then I started a new career in the theater, both as an actor and a director. And in my spare time, I love to work on CCB and ACB. So I want to talk to you about the multicultural roots of mainstream wisdom. And some of the things that you might see in the arts or in a new form that's going around the country and I think is amazing is storytelling, which is a really gift that many, many people from many, many different backgrounds share. And then unique traditions that are unique to your cultural background. So scientific knowledge does support indigenous wisdom. At a conference that was exploring this topic, Connie Reitman Solas, she is the executive director of the Intertribal Pomo uh, Intertribal Council, and she's a POMO uh, member. She said, in our tribal traditions, when a woman carried a child, she was protected from anything disruptive, such as violence. Everyone in the community ensured that the expectant woman experienced tranquility and calm. So when the child was born, the child would be even-tempered and peaceful. And this was something that they had learned over time. And now we have a name for it. It's scientifically called, uh, let me get to it. (laughs) I'm using a braille display. It's called fetal programming. And it describes this POMO concept. So a lot of times the wisdom that we are proving to be true, we didn't even know had an indigenous root. The next thing is family integrity, and you'll hear a lot about families, and there was a person writing on the African-American family, and these authors shared a noteworthy utility of family reunions has been their ability to give meaning and purpose to older men and women who emerge as custodians and transmitters of culture while educating and empowering future generations of African-Americans. And this was something that you you just think, oh, I'm going to a family, family reunion. But those traditions, that empowerment is passed on through many different mediums, and that's just one of them. And so where you think that the African-American family is not strong. I think the recent experience of the trial has showed us how strong George Floyd's family actually was and is. And I think it's a good example of that that we're living through right now. Multifaceted and dealing with diversity. In Asian and Latinx American backgrounds, we originate from all different countries with very different traditions and outlooks. Our experiences in the United States have been different, but with a common thread of often being forgotten when discussing race and culture. Within the larger group, 
there are different foods, art, music, etc. That becomes confusing. You meet one person and they say, oh, I'm, yeah, Latinx or Latino, Latina. And then you meet another person who says the same thing and they don't even eat the same food. So <laughs> you're like, what's going on here? So that is something that we have always had within our larger group. These groups are also growing at the highest rates in California. This is only a snapshot, and I'm not trying to give you this big analysis and everything, but IDC, what we want to do is bring this rich resource to CCB. And a lot of times you think, well, what's the harm in a chapter not having more than one or two or maybe no people from another background? And just think about it in this way. So also, multi-ethnic wisdom provides new ideas to the organization. And I'm going to share with you, I'm going to wrap up soon, I promise. Um, uh-huh. Some ideas, Pam's going to get me, that's why I said that. Yeah, actually, yeah. But go ahead, finish. <laughs> so these sayings encapsulate the philosophy of IDC. And I'm going to leave you with them. Words are like spears. Once they leave your lips, they can never come back. And that was written by Felicia Harris, a noted African-American philosopher. I'm going to speak Spanish now and then translate it for you. This saying says, Si te calles siete veces, levántate ocho. And it means if you fall seven times, get up eight. That's that resilience that Stephanie talked about. And I'm going to leave you with this very last saying. The journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. That was written by Lao Tzu. And that's what we're doing here. We're taking one step at a time. And we're going to go a long way. Thank you. That was great, Regina, even though I let you run over. That was great. So now I'd like to introduce Cache Wells. She is a member at large of CCB as well as IDC, and and she is false. She is from Florida. Did we lose her? Did we lose Cache? I think so. She said she would be traveling and logging in, and I maybe her phone dropped. There she is. There we go. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. You know, this technology. Uh, thank you again to all my panelists, speakers. Thanks for the opportunity. Again, I am from Florida. I come to you by way of corporate America, who transitioned to mentoring and volunteering. And I just want to share a little bit about getting involved. If you didn't think that you could do anything, today is your day to recognize that IBC can always use you. So I just want to share a little bit of information to get you started. So if you didn't think that you could be uh, important, we want you to know that you are a special VIP on today. And so we need your help. IBC is a great organization to get involved in. And we want you to know that you can support our efforts and causes and solutions to help bring about change in any of the needs and concerns that face the California state. By doing that, 
We want you to know that we value you. We value your ability to get involved because you are a special volunteer. And we want you to put your action into work and use your voice to be a part of what we're doing. And by doing that, we know that you can recognize that you can see yourself getting involved, whether it's small, a small part to play or a large part to play. We welcome you to join us. We also know that in doing so, that we want you to know that you can pursue us as we pursue the change in our community, in our neighborhood, to make a difference, to make to bring about change, whether it's in our local community and in the state of California. I have been a part of the of CCB since October, and I have enjoyed my time with them, and I know that this is going to be a great affiliate to get involved with. So again, recognize that no matter what your role is or no matter what parts you can play, that you are a special VIP for IDC and we want you to get involved. Help us to pursue. So we invite you today to join us and join our causes. If you have any questions, you can reach out to Regina or you can contact the ccbnet.org. And I thank you for my time. Thank you, Cache. That was great. Um, now we have time. We have time for um, questions and answers. If one minute for a question and a, um, two minutes for the answer. So if anybody has, and it's for twenty, oh, it twenty, twenty minutes, twenty-five minutes. And um, if you have any questions, um, just raise your hands, and they'll recognize you. And I will be timing those questions and answers. Don't have any hands raised yet. Would you like me to give the directions? I'm pretty sure everybody yes. probably knows. Yes, I would knows, appreciate it. That would be great. If you're on a PC, it's Alt-Y. If you're on an iPhone, it's on your screen to raise hand. Just double tap on it. If you're on a Mac, it's Option-Y. And if you're on a landline, it is Star-9. And don't be shy. We welcome comments, questions, points of view. No one yet. This is sometimes uncomfortable for people to talk about. But think about your own family, your own traditions, and maybe tell us what you think that your family traditions have to contribute to CCB. Is there anything that was prominent in your family that you've actually brought to CCB as a value that's helped you in this organization and your advocacy and so forth? Alice, I know. you may unmute. I'm sorry, you do have a hand raised, Alice. Great, thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you for the introduction. I, I've been hoping and wanting and, and, and hearing this. I have to say that I have not been able to um, delve into this affiliate as much. I, I, I've just been um, pulled in a couple of diff different directions. And I think that might be the case, you know, for many of us. Um, but one of the questions that I have, and um, how about if I um, direct this to Regina, that might be easier. If as a new affiliate, if there was one thing that you would like to see um, other than us joining, which I get, totally get, 
But if there's one thing that you would like to see CCB do for this affiliate, what would it be? Thank you. Great question, Alice. I'd like each of the panelists to answer that question. It's, okay, um, great. Thanks, Pam. And yeah, I, I'll go on mute. And I will go last. So, um, Jessica? Uh-oh. So, no, I'm here. Hi. Okay. I'm, I'm, I was in the cough. That's why I said, uh-oh. Oh, no. I was just unmuting. Um, thank you, first off, Alice, for your question. Very, um, I honestly haven't really thought of how, what we can ask of CCB per se. However, though, I do wish for this affiliate to become a space of welcome and a space of understanding and learning mindfulness. So I hope that CCB as a whole graces us with the ability to create an environment where people can really dive into topics that we normally don't hear in meetings. Like for example, I'm part of student equity committees now. Before when I would go into student certain meetings they would just put it as a bullet point and go cool we talked about it great uh, this is a chance for us to really go you know we shouldn't be a bullet point on an agenda we should really talk about these issues and really welcome people so um, hopefully that answers some of your question then this is me personally talking about um, how I wish uh, CCB can aid us as a starting affiliate. Thank you. Susan? Um, I would love it if CCB could be, in terms of local chapters, a place where when one brings in a, a fellow person of color that they come back again because um, they feel that, oh, okay, this is a place for me too just as I hope that IDC can offer to larger CCB that um, I hope people know that European American or white American allies are very much welcome in IDC. And I hope that all of this leads to just all of us feeling more welcome and more safe and, and having a real meaningful role in, in the whole organization and in the different affiliates. And in, and in life. Stephanie? Thank you, Pam. Can you hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. I wasn't sure if I muted myself again. I, um, I, I'm going to go with a, an area that might be a little difficult for some um, without delving into the, the details of it. Um, I understand there's some history that needs to, I feel, be revisited and fleshed out, um, but in a constructive way. And I think CCB as an organization, through those who know this history related to uh, a previous affiliate, affiliate um, can uh, bring some light to uh, that time because I was not a part of that history, but I respect history. Um, history can teach us a lot of things, I believe. And uh, so, again, without belaboring that point, um, CCB teaches the history 
and help us build a bridge to the future because this affiliate is not meant to, and I don't think I'm overstepping my, my role here to say this, we're, we're not meant to um, uh, push people or ideas aside and charge ahead. Uh, we welcome ally. We uh, welcome diversity. We are blessed to live in a very diverse state. Um, we want this to be truly inclusive. So please help us with that history and help us build a bridge to the future. Thank you. Regina, I'll go after you. Go ahead. Okay. So we entitled this an untapped resource. And I guess what I want personally to see from IDC's mission and work is that we can reach that understanding. We all, as blind and people with low vision, experience some form of bias and discrimination. And when that's layered with being the member of another group, like cross-disability or, or a member of a cultural background or perhaps a sexual identity that is different from what people think of as the mainstream, then there's more layers of discrimination to work through. And so I think we can build a bridge to working with different committees, different other affiliates, as things impact the wider community and blind and people with low vision. What you'll find is that it may even be more magnified in communities of color. And when that happens, it's good to have a partner to be able to explain how that works and also to partner with the other committees to understand how best to advocate going forward. So it can only be a source of strength in our advocacy work and a way for people to, to maybe go into an area they hadn't thought about. But as I said, it can only strengthen our case for advocacy. Go ahead, Pam. Um, what I like to see IDC and CCB do together is come together as IDC is the new affiliate and CCB has been around a long time and allow IDC to build its history in CCB. Um, we are a multiracial, multicultural state, and there are a lot of blind and visually impaired adults as well in this state who need our help and need our resources. And we need, as IDC needs, CCB's resources to help build those bridges and, and help grow and, and welcome allies from all cultures. Um, and I also want IDC to be a safe place for CCB members to come and talk if they're having a problem with biases, whether they're good or bad out there. And, you know, because we all deal with some type of bias, whether it has to do with your your blindness or your disability or your race and your culture. We all deal with biases. So I, that's what I like to see with uh, CCB do with IDC. And as a CCB board member who is terming out this year, 
I will want to continue working with CCB to grow and grow and grow with IDC. So, any other questions? Yes, Robert, you may unmute. <clears throat> uh, thank you very much. An excellent presentation here by this panel. May I start first, and then I'll make a comment with the tradition that was that was the original question. What traditions? does your family bring to the council? Um, my family, we were Mexican-Americans and very proud of it. And my family brought themselves to the council. I served for 15 years as president of the council and I could always count on family as volunteers, especially as bartenders in the hospitality rooms. In those <laughs> days, we could do that. Um, going to CCB, and ACB because they believed in what we wanted to do. And another point, and then I'll move to one more point after that, please. Um, when one family member was in trouble, we all rallied around. How can we help? Just like the council is. And when I, we, in, it, in life, you have bumps and bruises. I was okay because my family loved me. They cared about what I did. And I also cared about what they would think about what I did. Now, I want to say this, you now, this IDC, this, our newest affiliate, are a part of the history of the California Council of the Blind. You're making history and show us the way when we make errors, when we do say something dumb, you know, or whatever. And we will, too. But we will be friends and family. I congratulate our newest affiliate. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Oh. Bob, I just got chills. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Linda Titus. Hello, Linda. She just lowered her hand. <laughs> All right, there we go. Let's try Linda. You may unmute. Yes. Hi, Linda Titus. Hi. I am the uh, chair of the Senior Affairs Commission for San Bernardino County. Um, we're located in Southern California. We're the largest county in California and actually yeah, in the entire United States, the <laughs> truth be told. Um, what I'd like to say is that I, I really appreciate um, hearing about the IDC. Uh, you are a breath of fresh air and totally welcome. Uh, San Bernardino County's Board of Supervisors just declared racism as a public health crisis. And so we have element hmm. groups that are now working on bridging and building uh, bridges and uh, filling some of those gaps. So uh, you're like a, like I said, a breath of fresh air. And I was sitting here thinking, uh, what is the legacy that you want to leave? What is it? How do you want to be remembered? And that's how I, that's the question I asked myself. But uh, one of my challenges as uh, chair of the uh, Senior Affairs Commission is getting folks to the table. I need everyone to come to the table, uh, regardless of your ability, your disability, race, creed, color, uh, age. Uh, uh, we need you at the table. We have uh, five different committees that meet and uh, intergenerational access, nutrition, um, we uh, we just want 
everyone to have a voice and we want to know what those needs are. So I welcome you to uh, take a look at our website for San Bernardino County, look at the resources that we have there, look at our meeting times and dates, and please come and have a voice and teach us and help us. So thank you very much. And I am totally enjoying being a member of CCB. I am a member of the CCB chapter here in the high desert of uh, Southern California. So thank you. You are more than welcome, Linda. I am in L.A. County. This is Pam, or Pamela, and I'm in L.A. County. It's the second largest county in the state. So um, I would, we all would be more than welcome to help you out with resources and things. So that is not a problem. One thing that we'd like to do as far as IDC, for, for my personal, what I would like to see is IDC grow throughout the state. So thank you. Any other questions? We do. Oh, busy, busy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, he lowered his hand. It was Jeff Tom, and he lowered his hand. So I guess he Come on, not... Jeff. Ask your question. We won't <laughs> bite. All right, Jeff. I'm going to go. All right, Penny, you may unmute. Thank you, Cache. Thank you, Cache. Thank you, Cache. Penny? Well, she's unmuted. Jeff? I make, I make my comment while, while she's getting on. That's what I was going to say. As, a, as an at-large member, my goal for IBC and CCB is to uh, really put the desire that you guys will take every effort to work together. Um, no, no effort is too small and no um, challenge is too great when you're working together. And so that's my goal and that's my desire for both affiliate and parent, you know, to be able to come together. And I, I am hopeful that change, change does start one day at a time, one week at a time, a month at a time, a year at a time. And so as we forge forward, I know that um, we're going to uh, address every concern and every need and every desire with the same zeal because when we when one wins we all win and and I think we need to just keep that in the forefront. If we are truly a family, we, we stick together as a family as, as Stephanie said. When we when we go together we rise together. So that is my desire and my hope for both. Thank you. And Penny Thank does you. You Penny it. is unmuted. Okay. Pam and Regina and Stephanie and all of the people on the panel, I want to thank you for such a great presentation. I really enjoy where you're going. I think it's time. It's, it's time. And if you need help, give me a call. Thank you, Penny. Thank you, Penny. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's the last hand for now. Okay. Unmute. <laughs> Pam, this is Sarah. Oh. <laughs> we we may let you ask a question. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, let let um, I'll let me ask one, please. So I'm I'm wondering if the affiliate has had a chance with being so brand new um, to sit down and talk about, you know, what kind of workshops or presentations that you, you want to offer to CCB members um, to, to really enlighten and, you know, move forward. 
Actually, Sarah, the board has been talking about a presentation. You know, Mr. Gina is the president, and <laughs> I'm, I like to mess with her and tell her, wait, 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 give us a day off. But she's already working on a presentation in May. I think it's it Mother's Day weekend. Uh, or Well, we're still settling on a date, but it'll be either the first or second weekend of May. And um, she, I'll let Regina explain what it is. But yes, we are working on workshops trying to, I would like to see them every other month to discuss issues that are going on within the state as well as um, other things that are going on in IDC or in, even in CCB. I, I'd like to see myself personally see a workshop done with CCB on on how we bring more diversity to the leadership of CCB, how we bring – so those are things that I like to see. But, Regina, go ahead and answer, answer and Sarah's question. What we're doing just in the immediate future relates to what's going on in the wider nation right now in nationally. And this was very traumatic for our nation, the George Floyd trial, however you believe – the outcome was or wasn't, we still have trauma around it as a nation. And I think all of us need to come together and discuss how to deal with that specialized kind of trauma that hits a nation. Um, I think just as a human being, the videos and things were, were hard and some of us never saw them because of that. And so that's what our workshop will be about. I want to definitely deal with things within CCB as well and tackle issues, but remain relevant. And I think that healing from this kind of trauma, and that means even if you're an ally or a person that felt that the trial went, didn't go your way, the way you would have decided. So those things are important, and that's what we're going to explore in May. Okay, you so, have a few more questions. Are you ready to take more? Or yeah. Out of time? yeah, we can take um, one or two more. Okay. Christy, you may unmute. Can you hear me? Uh-huh. Okay, good. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a hard question. There's a little elephant. It's in the room. And... And I know um, that it was kind of discussed at the CCB board meeting. And I was a little bit disappointed. But I didn't vote no for the simple reason that I believe that we do need diversity. But I'm not so sure that this chapter should be called inclusive. More it should be being called cultural. Because from my understanding... It is more about cultural and racial diversity than inclusion with uh, uh, LGBTQ. So I'd like some comments on that, please. Well, Virginia, we'll start with you. I'll work down. Well, and we only got a minute with this question. Yes. It's hard with a minute left, and I would encourage anybody that isn't satisfied with our answers here to reach out to IDC and come to, you know, talk with us, all of that. I will just say that that's where the coalition and partnership comes in 
because as communities are affected, for instance, hate crimes are on the rise in many communities, Jewish communities, uh, LGBTQ plus communities. There's a lot of legislation that's hitting those communities that will hurt them. And similarly, in a racial sense, there's a reaction to change going on across this nation. And so, well, I believe if we try to do everything, we don't do anything well. So we did need a concentration that doesn't preclude joining with partners and saying this affects our community too, and we partner with you. And that is what we will do with LGBTQ plus communities, with communities that are cross disability, such as deaf blind. There was a recent video of a deaf woman who was handcuffed and mm-hmm. stuck during an interrogation. And as you know, when you're handcuffed as a deaf person, you are now gagged. And so there is a lot of room for cross disability work. And that's the best answer I can give in a minute. And if anyone wants to add, then I have time. Go ahead. I can. I would love to add. Thank you. Uh-huh. So this Go is, ahead, this is, hi, this is Jessica Christie. Thank you for your question. First off, if we look at Marion Webster's definition of diversity, we really start to see that, and I'll read it for you here. I can get this advertisement to go away uh it's meant to the conditions of having or to be able to um, talk about different ideas here we go the condition of having or being composed of differing elements especially the inclusion of people of different races uh cultures etc in a group or organization so definitely stemming from this literally from merriam-webster's definition. Um, And also inclusiveness has to do with really thinking about this concept from Kimberly Crenshaw, a prolific lawyer, and also who coined the term intersectionality, that really talks about how we as individuals are multifaceted individuals, right? We're not a monolithic, we're not just a blind person. We're a blind person with different ethnicities, different ideas. And that's why we thought of inclusive diversity, especially in California, because this is the reality where we have so many intersectionality parts of it. And one of the focuses we're focused on specifically with race and ethnicity is because we see that as like the crossroads of everything. Right now, we see a lot of transgender Black women that are being uh, brutally uh, attacked. If you see a famous actress, Laburn Cox, she's famous, she has privilege, and yet she was assaulted here in Griffith Park in uh, LA mm-hmm. County. So you can clearly see that, yes, race, you know, that is, we, we're intersectional individuals. And yes, we might not focus on LGBTQ plus IQ uh, ideas yet. However, though, it are they are included because we're very intersectional and race is is at that crossroads of affecting everything that we are talking about today, inclusivity, diversity. And if we're not able to break down those brick walls, then how are we able to create, you know, give um, this idea of uh, inclusiveness and diversity. So that's why we decided on the terminology. And I know I only have a little bit of time because I know Pam's going to call me right now, but call me. (laughs) 
email me. I have books. I will do book club for this organization, for this lovely affiliate. I mean, um, you know, Susan Kirasawa, she's amazing. She read the book that I recommended. So I, I'm hopefully that we can have book club uh, as well in this affiliate. Thank you. I, I, I just think, Chrissy, just, Chrissy, I, I, Jessica answered the question. And um, if you guys have any other questions or any other comments on this topic, um, you can email us because we are almost out of time. And yes, you we are, are actually here. Yep. Out of time. <laughs> we have hit that in oh. button. Oh. <laughs> so um, we don't even have. So I, what I will do is say thank you for listening to us today. We encourage who wants to join to come and join us. You can contact me. My, web, my information is on CCB website as long as I'm still on the board, ha-ha. And, um, and Regina's, you can always find Regina's information. So, Regina, we can, if you can post your poem on CCBL, that would be great. She has a um, poem, but we, we don't have time. To I promise to it. it's two minutes long. Do we have? We it's don't already have 45. We don't have time, yeah. um, 47, something like that. So thank you again for inviting us to present IDC, introduce IDC to CCB. And- and Regina, stick around. Maybe later um, we can do it um, in between the five thirty and six. Sound good? Yes, later on. All right, we'll do we'll do that. Me. Thank okay. you, you well, guys. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. thank you, Pam, Regina, Stephanie, Jessica, Susan, and Cachet. That was a great presentation. All right, do we have Leslie Spoon around? Hello, I am here. All right, so we have Leslie Spoon who has traveled all the way from Florida. I, you know, I hope you're not too tired to do this. Um, and she, <laughs> never, she's going to give us a good stretch break. We've all been um, sitting for quite a while today. So, Leslie, I'm going to hand it on over to you to take it away. And, take Leslie, this is Deb. I need to make sure that you don't want to be streamed. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, hang on just a minute. Then we're going to be taking a 20-minute break on ACB Radio Live event. And if you're registered for this convention, we encourage you to beat it right up here to Zoom where we will continue with the exercises. But you get a break if you're listening on ACB Radio. So hang on just one second. <laughs> 